Thank you very much for joining us this evening in person and online uh, for our conversation with Professor Wen Xing Chao from Hunter College and curator and writer Margaret Lou Clinton uh, on the recent art exhibition and catalog for C.C. Wang, uh, Lines of Abstraction. Uh, the catalog uh, published in August 2023 and available uh, for sale uh, tonight for $40 after the talk as well as online. I dropped the link in the chat. Uh, is the first retrospective monograph on the artistic experimentations of uh, C.C. Wang. Wen Xing Chao is Associate Professor of Art History at Hunter College CUNY and the CUNY Graduate Center. She specializes in art of China and inner Asia. Her book, Mount Wutai, Visions of a Sacred Buddhist Mountain, won the honorable mention for the Joseph Levinson Prize, China pre-1900, from the Association for Asian Studies. And Professor Chao is a member of the Advisory Council for the Rubin Museum of Art, where she also served as a advisory member of Project Himalayan Art and contributed to the newly published Himalayan Art in 108 Objects. Uh, her current book project, Shaping Time, Art of Rebirth in China and Inner Asia, explores the visual and material culture of reincarnation within the Galupa sphere of influence from the 17th to the 20th century. And then uh, to her right is Margaret Lou Clinton, as she, they pronounce, is an Asian-American curator and writer. Uh, they take a historical approach to interpreting and translating artistic responses to changing conditions of technology, ecology, social economics, geopolitics, and cultural histories. In addition to owning and running their own gallery, they were the director of the Miguel Abreu a gallery and of Alexander Gray Associates. Uh, Clinton is an original member of the Arts Activist Organization and Ford Foundation grantee Stop Discrimination and currently serves on the board of the Montez Press Radio. Uh, they will soon complete a master's in art history at Hunter College CUNY and a critical studies alum and are a critical studies alum of the Whitney Museum of American Art Independent Study Program. Good luck. <laughs> with that, and uh, without further ado, please welcome Professor Wang Ching Chao and Margaret Lu Clinton. Today, I'm really delighted to be here to discuss the, um, to share our book, our publication, um, which does, um, explores the career and work of an artist who, in a way, couldn't be more local to New York City, but also couldn't be more transnational at the same time. C.C. Wang was born at the very tail end of the Qing Dynasty to a family of distinguished scholar officials. He studied law and painting in Suzhou and in Shanghai, and he immigrated to the New York City in 1949, um, when he was already a, re a re really re very renowned for his collection of classical Chinese paintings, uh, and also for his keen connoisseurial eye. Uh, and by the time he had arrived in New York, he was also a very distinguished painter, um, having studied with one of the most successful painters of Republican Shanghai, Wu Hufan, and also having taught painting in Shanghai. Um, but um, as we'll hear more from 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 Margaret later, the art scene in New York in the 1950s was was rather unequipped with a framework to understand and appreciate Sissi's work. Um, he then subsequently painted instead oriental lampshades for interior design companies and other similarly acceptable genres and venues for Chinese immigrant artists at the time. Um, the moment he arrived in New York City, he also enrolled in the Art Students League of New York um, and continued taking classes there for more than two and a half decades. Um, the, our, our exhibit and our book here um, showcase how in a way, it's a story of how how this marginalization that he had experienced when he arrived as an artist 
um, and, um, and as well as his serious study of Western tra- academic traditions in modernism at the League, all in a way served as catalyst for Sisi Wang to examine his own tradition more deeply and to push its limit. Um, I also want to say that there are any, uh, there, there are any number of reasons why this project felt timely, um, beyond the very obvious need to give Chinese and Chinese American artists their due. And also, um, at the same time to destabilize the canonical history of post-war abstraction. Uh, one of the things I feel strongly is that we focus on, we decided to focus on Wang's career as a means of kind of diverging from the, the sort of prevailing presentism of, of our time, um, both in our civic discourse and in higher education. And so here, here's an artist who is, who was among a group of artists and scholars who was very deeply connected to and ensconced in history, in art history, and also just with very old things, very old paintings. And he was doing so as a kind of modernist, modernist project. The, the, the publication here is an output of the project. Uh, this output of the uh, project is uh, this exhibition catalog um, uh, designed by, we have we had our own book designer, Natalie Wittikin, uh, with editing and translation assistance from Mary Kaysen and Crystal Leo. Um, and this book contains short essays about each of the work uh, in uh, it contains um, short essays and about each of the work in the exhibition that were with contribution from our own MA students at Hunter, um, and also six essays that explores Wang's multidimensional career from various different uh, vantage points. And so here's just a, the table of content to give you a sense. Um, in kind of an introductory essay, um, I write about Wang's practice in thinking about the unity of his doing and his knowing, so the painting and the connoisseurship. Uh, throughout his really long, very long career. Um, and then in the second essay, my co-editor and co-curator on this project, Daniel um, and Greenberg of the University of Minnesota, explores CC's brushwork um, as a 20th century literati. Um, and Margaret here, who uh, served as the project's curatorial fellow uh, and co-presenting with me today, examines Wang's position as an immigrant artist, um, I know, transforming tradition, um, as an immigrant artist trying to reconcile different paradigms of what it meant to be an artist in post-war New York. Um, and then we have an essay by Joseph Shire Doberg, the Oscar Tang and Agnes Tang Associate Curator of Chinese Paintings of the Met, uh, which recovers CC's contribution as a connoisseur collector whose knowledge and insight was foundational to the developing field of Chinese art history. Um, that's followed by an essay by Jordan Homestead, a former student of Daniel Greenberg at the University of Minnesota and an artist and currently an MFA candidate in the Fine Arts Department at Parsons School of Design. They examine uh, Wang's calligraphy inspired by New York's street art. And last but not least, um, we have the esteemed scholar, artist, and former student of C.C. Wang, Arno Chang, providing an intimate look into C.C. Wang's teaching and mentorship. Um, and so this is a, I think we try to see what all the different angles for this incredibly um, talented, multifaceted, and complex um, um, person with a really kind of uh, multidimensional career through these different essays in it. So I think um, um, we hope that the, both the book and, um, well, not only introduce the audience to Wang's artistic path, but also provide new frameworks for looking at the larger tradition and the history that Wang was a part of. 
Um, and I also just want to say a few words about how the project came to be. Um, Margaret will talk more a little bit later on. So I teach at Hunter, um, where we have a fantastic curatorial program in which uh, faculty members um, in the art and art history department have the opportunity to, to develop a curatorial seminar with our MA students, um, or MA and or MFA students, actually. And we can curate a show and produce a publication, in uh, and we did so in collaboration with the Hunter Art Galleries. In this case, um, the, uh, we worked with Sarah Watson, who was then the curator of Hunter Art Galleries, and her assistant, uh, another actually another mar marvelous student in our program, Anna Lee. So my own specialty um, is in art history of 18th century Chinese and Tibetan Buddhist art. So from the very beginning, I, I really embraced um, what was for me a rare opportunity to um, examine together with students the career of an artist, not only through their art, but through the insight of former students, family, friends, and colleagues. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, in the process, then to make connection with them and to become friends with many of them, um, any of the lenders and supporters of the exhibit, uh, including CC's daughter, Yang Ku King, grandson, Ray King, Arnold Chang, Kathy Young, Xiao Wang, Fu Chongmong, and um, Mr. Zhao Baorong. So um, most of our students at Hunter in the curatorial students had little exposure to what is often considered a very exclusive field of Chinese painting history before they came to this project. But they really brought with them a wealth of other expertise and experiences and just a really fierce, fearless embrace of new terrains, which makes um, made this exhibition a place for a conversation. And it's really it kind of taught, it's really um, meant to um, also help us understand how to look at this tradition from the outside. So um, when I, as I implemented this curatorial seminar, seminar Hunter, my collaborator on this project, Daniel Greenberg, also designed his own undergraduate uh, seminar at the University of Minnesota. So our two seminars also met virtually to develop, uh, kind of trying to come up with a curatorial vision. Um, and so together with our students, we, we, in the end we decided to focus our attention on CC's little known experimentations. Um, which students in the seminars saw as this very profound engagement with tradition and um, really demonstrate his unstoppable curiosity over a span of seven decades. So here is a, uh, um, a view, an installation view of the exhibit at Hunter College's Loop Surf Gallery earlier this year. Uh, here we were, uh, we, we were in the same gallery space looking at the works and designing the exhibit together with uh, my collaborator, Dana Greenberg, on the lower part here with Arnold Chang. Uh, here and then with uh, here Sarah Watson, uh, all trying to figure this out together. And um, the show has now traveled to Kalamazoo Institute of Arts in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, it was so well received that it is rare we have a gallery a show that travel. You know, that's not planned in advance, but that was. So now it's uh, on view at the Kalamazoo Institute of Arts. Um, and uh, if you can't go to Kalamazoo right away, uh, it is uh, there is a nifty virtual walk walkthrough online that allows you to see the artwork and also read all the labels on the side. Um, so um, the, the whole process was very collaborative. Um, and I think in some ways that collaboration has continued with the audience of the exhibits and now the readers of the book. Um, so we've learned, as a result, I'm still getting inquiries and learning new things about C. 
Lucy's artistic journey um, and also kind of possible new ways of exploring that. So we hope we can, I can, we can continue the, um, that process with you, with the book, um, with the audience today. Um, so to begin this um, conversation, I'd like to start with a uh, small quote from Cece, um, and, um, which reads, if you really want to grasp the true essence of brushwork, be more, you must experiment with the brush yourself. Why is it that I can discern a work by Nizan by seeing only one corner of the painting by him? Because I've already immersed myself in his works and have practiced with my own hand many hundreds of times. I'm familiar with every twist and turn of his wrist and the rhythm and motion of its increasing or decreasing pressure. So this quote um, comes from a book of conversations between Cece and the art historian John Stanley Baker. Um, in which Wang tries to explain that his familiarity with Nizan, um, uh, one of the most revered literati painters um, in uh, dynastic China, comes from wielding the brush just as this 14th century painter did, uh, and, and hundreds of times. So at this point, uh, Stanley Baker, who's I think much to be emulated as a scholar, who he's, she's not satisfied with being told how and what. She wants to know why. So she presses on and asks, well, what are you doing? Is this, is this sort of exercise basically forgery? Um, and so Wang's reply, I think, really clarifies his purpose. Um, and here he, he, he says, no, perhaps traditional books and Western scholars all insist that Chinese painting is merely copying ancients or always repeating what someone else has done. But in fact, what we hold to be most precious are the fresh elements and the contribution of the individual. These freshmen's uh, elements should not be simply fashionable or without any basis. Instead, they should contain within them experiences uh, of the past. So the past encountered, uh, encompassed in Wang's uh, own wide-ranging artistic repertoire over the span of seven decades then becomes a very unique portal for discerning this layered of embodied knowledge. Um, for me, this, this section of this conversation well sums up well what I refer to as kinesthetic knowing, a way of possessing and processing knowledge through embodied practice. Um, and it can be seen as a thorough, a thorough line across one's experimentations, beginning with the practice of copying old paintings and emulating the style of prior masters during his formative years in Shanghai, and this is the 1930s and 40s, and then continuing through the inventive um, explorations of medium and materiality. Um, and then a recovery of order through chance methods of mark making. And then finally, the distillation and abstraction of painterly and calligraphic lines and dots. Um, well, these materiality, well, these explorations of materiality, chance, and abstraction may be familiar to the artistic language of post-war New York, uh, where they reveal they re they're revealed by Wang's work as distinctive issues central to the development in the history of Chinese literary art. So it is in Wang that we can recover a story that has yet to be told of New York City uh, in the second half of the 20th century as a unique junction where abstraction flourished and where. Chinese literati art and theory first gained critical recognition in the West. Um, so I want
want to just take a few moments um, before handing off the floor to Margaret in looking at these sections, maybe one, one work for each section to give you some taste of what this is about that I um, write in the introductory essay of this book. Um, and in these areas of in each of these areas of experimentation that roughly conforms to, to the trajectory of Wang's painting career. So copying and imitation and emulation, sorry. Uh, like painters before him, Wang adhered to the practice of copying and emulation as a necessary foundation for developing one's own seeing voice, which is the, the seeing voice is his favorite analogy to the literati notion of expressive brushwork. Um, and also as a means of dialogue with a lineage of past painters. So here in this work from the 1940s, you can see how, um, the according to this inscription here, Wang combined um, the upper and lower sections of two original paintings by the 14th century painter Wang Mong um, uh, in this very self-conscious play with recombining and recomposing images. And uh, this cell life from 1956 is one of the only surviving works by him in, uh, in the medium of casing on canvas, which he presumably used when he was taking classes at the Art Students League. Um, so you have objects that are drawn from the Western style life tradition um, displayed here. Uh, they're this kind of loose brushwork, uh, lined forms, and the layered painting application reveals uh, another dimension, which is one's long-held admiration for painters like Cézanne, Matisse, Braque, and other forebears of Western modernist painting. Although Wang did not end up pursuing the genre of still life or the medium and material of uh, Western traditions such as casing or oil on canvas, um, he drew from his studies of Western art with a similar spirit of emulation as he approached Chinese artists of each period and specialty to identify their distinct achievements. Medium and materials. Wang's well, embrace of abstraction and experimentation in the 1960s has often been, and very aptly so, characterized as, as only possible due to his move abroad and his direct exposure to contemporary artists working in post-war New York. Um, but what hasn't been emphasized, and what I try to show in, in this work, in my essay, and also I think in the exhibit at large, is, the, is his abiding interest in exploring the interactive materiality of paper, ink, and brush uh, in paintings by old masters. And that, I think, translates over his own experimentation. So Wang's own notes and discussions, a great deal of which is preserved and translated by Kathy Young, uh, who's here, uh, um, displays a meticulous interest in the precise conditions of paper, brush, and ink. So whether it was uh, his observation that the painter Xia Gui sometimes pre-sprayed paper with an adhesive to prepare less absorbent surface that would engender a special texture for brush strokes um, in his uh, very well-known painting, Pure and Remote View, or that a painting on silk by Nizan would have otherwise revealed the artist um, Bi Qu or 
brush play had it been done by um, Yuan Dynasty paper or that the Ming Dynasty painter Xu Wei makes the thin adhesive to, uh, in his ink to create a special effect or that the Song painter Fan Quan's textured stroke could only be rendered by a worn out brush of a particular size width and length. One's sensitivity to the precise conditions and qualities of ink brush and painting uh, surface was closely related to uh, his authentication of works. But this keen uh, awareness also conveys how much he internalized the process and materiality uh, through not only looking, but doing. So this is, uh, to, to show okay, that example, this is one of his earliest investigations um, uh, uh, in this area. It's, um, it's an untitled painting that is referred to as the Ox Blood Experiment that was made in the year of the Ox in 1961. The painting is unusual for its elongated vertical format and its combination of pink, black, and white hues, prompting one to wonder which color were mixed, uh, made or mixed with ox blood, or if the title referred to ox blood glaze, popular among new New York collectors of Chinese ceramics at the time. Uh, pigments of varied translucency, a lot of brush of varying size and wetness to be visible. Um, in, this, in this abstract work, the only kind of um, decipherable forms are those made with the black and white brushstrokes reminiscent of Chinese palaces writing. Order and chance. Much of one's preoccupation beginning in the 1960s lay in exploring the dialogic relationship between chance and control, so and also brushwork and surface texture that is created without a brush. An abstraction of form and monumentality of landscape representation. Um, one's quest for good brushwork without a brush is nowhere more evident than in his 1985 homage to Fan Quan, um, the artist Fan Quan here. You can see, though not a direct copy, the towering mountain and waterfall in the distance and a set of hills in the foreground visibly evokes uh, the Fan Quan's traveler amid mountains and strings, which is the icon of Northern Song monumental landscape painting tradition. So here you can see on the left is a detail from Fan Quan on the right, the, paint, the work by Wang. Um, Wang replaces Fan Quan's signature brush method, or known as Cunfa, or the brush method of Cunfa, which is later known as the raindrop method, um, with ink impressions from a roller wrapped in crumpled ink dipped paper that are then layered with dry and wet lines and ink watches to bring out the contour of vegetation and forms of the mountain. You can see here the the the, the, the paper uh, impressions. Wang's imitation of Fan Quan's brush method, without the use of a brush, displays an ingenious nod to the towering accomplishment of travelers amidst mountains and streams, which is to manifest through painting the fundamental order of nature, uh, Noah's Lee, according to Neo-Confucian metaphysics. Uh, Wang's impressions created by semi-accidental means follow Fan Quan's meticulous labor of the brush. Both are as natural as nature itself, creating not only an artifice or illusion of reality, but an immersion in that world. Uh, so here, Wang's recognition of Fan Quan's pursuit to break the boundaries between artistic creation and natural order is also, again, entirely kinesthetic.
aesthetic. Uh, his interest is not in reproducing the work of an earlier artist, but in embodying and pushing further Fan Quan's process of creation. So this is a really nice example, but I, you really see throughout his uh, different works the different ways in which he, he engages in a, in a, in a um, conversation with these previous masters. So finally, abstraction. Uh, in the final decade of his life, the concern for lines and textured pattern returned one to his earliest beginnings when he learned to write uh, and uh, when he learned to write and practice calligraphy as a young boy. The Chinese word for text word is wen, which literally means pattern or striation. Word, uh, written words are, first of all, patterns, and one turned to them, uh, turned them from their abstraction as linguistic symbols. So already they're abstract, think about them, but turning them from their abstraction as linguistic symbols into his own abstract imagery. Um, Wang's daily writing practice in New York City's phone book uh, on New York City's phone book captures this transformation in precise te temporal turns. It's so wonderful to kind of see it change as he goes, um, where, you know, with pages that are increasingly illegible and abstracted, uh, write, writing that, you know, turn to, their, they become their own visual and rhythmic composition. And uh, lastly, there are two photos of, of Wang working in the 1990s when he was well into his 80s. Uh, and you can see on the right-hand side, he's actually using a, um, a hardware store sponge brush to, to paint. So this kind of you know, unstoppable curiosity and desire to experiment and explore, uh, I think in many ways continue, uh, help to energize our study over time as well and still does. So it's with that that I turn to Margaret. As Professor Cho mentioned, uh, in terms of the organization of the book or our approach to these works, I come from a gallery perspective, so I'm used to working with artists very directly. And when I get to see, or I start to see, major shifts in an artist practice, I'm always curious as to why those shifts are happening. Um, and I think that that is basically what informed my own inquiry into C.C. Wong's practice. So what we see um, on the screen right now are examples of the emulation that Professor Cho was detailing earlier. And uh, this is just one piece of a three-part scroll. And the three parts were made between 19, they were painted between 1934 and 1937. And so the, the part of the scroll that you see at the top of the screen has been painted by C.C. Wong. And then if you look at the the bottom half of the screen, you can see the original work. Is this Shakwe? Yeah, so the Shakwe work, uh, Pure and Remote View of Streams and Mountains, that was made in um, around the year two, uh, 1200. And so you can start to see the, this sort of correlation, but also distinctive personal style. Anyhow. So this is the 1930s, and this is the sort of training and background and skill and mastery that really um, that really characterizes Wong's training, early training, um, right into, and he continues to paint in this, we've seen this painting already in this presentation, but just to show you again, a painting, a traditional landscape painting that makes two different um, historical references, and this is in the 1940s. So when we get to the 1960s, back to that gallerist question, how did we go from there to here? 
what was going on at that time, both in the artist's life, what was going on in terms of uh, where they were working, maybe conversations that they were having with other artists, etc. Uh, so anyhow, this is, it's the 1950s that is of most interest to me for that very reason. So this is actually a painting from the mid-60s, but uh, Wong was painting this way in the late 50s. Um, and so I'm actually going to talk a little bit about that time now just by reading excerpts from the catalog, if that's okay. And do please forgive me if some of this is a little bit redundant. No, no, no. Can you see? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so, you know, this period has been described, the, the 1950s, when one is reading about C.C. Wong's uh, background, the 1950s, this period, it's described as a period of a digestion, for, for example, but it's not always really highlighted, and I think it's because things were starting to change in the studio and in the approach, um, but I'm just going to detail that time or that the basically the transition into New York from China in 1949. Um, so looking closely at Wong's experience in the 1950s, it becomes clear that the constraints of his circumstances significantly contribute to later experiments. Wong began his formal study of Western painting at the Art Students League in 1949. The following year, he held his first U.S. solo exhibition of Chinese literati paintings at the Warren E. Cox Gallery in New York. In contrast to galleries exhibiting contemporary artwork, Cox's focus on what were once called Oriental antiquities earned him a reputation as a tastemaker in the spheres of ceramics, lighting, and interiors, which often included chinoiserie. Meanwhile, an international conversation set against antiquity and tradition was forming in prominent New York galleries and museums. Avant-gardist modernisms that were irreconcilable with pre-modern traditions were prioritized, an unfavorable condition for many Chinese diasporic artists whose work required active dialogue with the past. These constraints later generated a series of adaptations in Wong's work. In a gallery announcement introducing Wong's 1959 solo exhibition at Micho Gallery, and by the way, the painting that you see on the screen right now is part of the collection of the gallerist Frank Fulaicho, so that was the founder of the Micho Gallery. James Cahill um, noted, I'm afraid that the subtle stylistic allusions in his painting and others of their most admirable qualities may escape some casual Occidental viewers. Much of the finest Chinese painting of any period, alas, is likely to suffer the same handicap. Micho's gallery founder, Frank Fulaicho, recounted a visit between Cici Wang and the Chinese artist uh, Chan Datian. In response to Wong's frustrations regarding the difficulty of explaining Chinese painting to Western audiences, Chan Dachian responded, it is of course an insurmountable handicap for those who have never touched a brush. Again, the word handicap appears, this time referring to the viewer and not the painter. Let's see, and I'm just going to skip ahead a little bit. 
So, you know, um, and let me pause because Professor Cho also talked about the way in which when uh, Wang first came to New York in 1949 for the first seven years of living here in New York, he was painting oftentimes lampshades, wallpaper, and in, in a style that was usually what's called often referred to as a, a bird and flower style, which is, we have an example here, <laughs> having to sit next to a bird and flower painting. So it's, and I think that we've seen this sort of style. And this style, it's certain big, large brush strokes also do remind me of this Chu Pai Shi um, style of painting that is also on the screen right now. And it wasn't really what Wang wanted to be painting. Um, not at all. Uh, but it was popular and it was legible because of the bigness of the strokes. And so I'm just showing, this is a Mark Toby painting from 1957, Space Ritual. Uh, and it's Sumi ink on paper. And for, for those of you who are familiar with Toby, Toby had also been influenced by both Chinese artists that were here in the U.S. in the 1920s and Japanese calligraphers in the 1930s. So when he takes up these kind of big brush strokes, again, they're legible, but they're legible for their kind of abstract expressionist materiality. Um, and I just want to talk a little bit about that right now. And so you all know this guy. His, yeah, we all know him. Um, so here's a Hans Namath uh, photograph of Jackson Pollock. Um, and so I'm going to read a little bit more about that context that CC was working in. And he was also studying, right, at this time. But this is the, the popular, let's say, context of, of um, sort of le a leading New York sensibility. So featured in the August 8, 1949 issue of Life magazine, Pollock became a household name when the feature's tagline asked in a roundabout proclamation, is he the greatest living painter in the United States? Pollock's ruggedly individual and unapologetically non-representational painting symbolized a defiant rejoinder to the socialist realist styles of the United States Cold War counterparts. In a 1950 interview, Pollock considered paint's materiality to be so deeply essential that he retracted the brush and circumvented the mark of his own hand to showcase the medium's tendencies. Pollock says, most of the paint I use is a liquid, flowing kind of paint. The brushes I use are used more as sticks than brushes. The brush doesn't touch the surface of the canvas, it's just above. And we can see that in this photo. So I just wanted to, I'm going to, I'll come back to Arnold. I'm going to skip past Arnold and show you Cece and show you Cece holding that brush, but also working in an abstract fashion. So Pollock's physical removal of the brush could not be more distinct from Wong's physical connection to it. In this context, how can we reconcile the first encounters by a U.S. audience with a cross-generational tradition of Chinese brushwork and brushstroke? Wong himself stated, the first two important things I learned about Western painting are that it is meant to be seen from a distance, so composition is crucial, and that the touch of an oil painter is similar to our brushwork, but not exactly the same because of the nature of the materials. And brushwork is one aspect that Chinese painters have explored in much greater depth. One's attention to disparities between viewing distances is telling. Viewing in the pre-modern Chinese context in which Wang was trained meant private viewing. The Bimua, 
brush and ink skills that Wong mentions are studied within the scope of inches. And that's exactly what um, our colleague and another contributor to this catalog, that's, that's Arnold Chang. Or Arnold Chang. And the picture, by the way, is as taken by another contributor to the catalog, <laughs> um, the curator Joseph Shire-Dolberg. So it was really, this is a whole team effort here. But anyhow, you can see, jokes aside, you can see how carefully Arnold is expecting inspecting that scroll. Quite a difference in terms of looking at, you know, to go back to Pollock to see how far away we can be to still see all of the material of the paint. This is just, there's very, very different priorities. Um, so the, the, the BMO brush and ink skills that Wong mentions are studied within scopes of, within a, the scope of inches and not at the span of feet. Within the landscape tradition, a dramatic play of geological scale unfolds in key details. Any serious scholar or practitioner of BMO inspects every inch to uncover the skills embedded in the construction of the image and the script alike. And is the, and is the case, and is, as is, excuse me, the case with artwork titles in Western traditions, the literati's inscription and choice of seal inflect tone and guide interpretation. We can infer that these three registers, the mark of an experienced hand, a stylized inscription, and equally sophisticated seals would have been virtually imperceptible to a Western audience accustomed to large-scale compositions. Let's see. So I'm going to go back to Wong and part of me. I think I'm going to go one more slide. So, you know, um, I just want to also point out that he's, Wong is not just, this is not an issue of pride, because I think that it's really important to notice that he had the humility to go back and study a totally different, maybe, approach to art making or painting, to experiment with materials, and to a certain way uh, allow for a, a, a change in the control of the materials. Um, so, I just, I think that, again, it's not pride, but there's definitely, um, I think that he does not want to just emulate his Western counterparts, which I respect him for very much. So, reflecting on his earliest viewings of abstract expressionist painting, he stated with very characteristically upper class politesse. I knew of Pollock, Klein, Motherwell, and Toby. I saw what they were doing, but I didn't really understand it at the time. On the contrary, one did understand, and he detailed desperate, disparate methodologies with alacrity. In Western art, the brush is a tool, which is used to illustrate the object's volume, texture, structure, light, and darkness and shadows. The Chinese brush, on the other hand, has a unique tip that can produce pointy, round, flat, and bold strokes, and it is developed to suit the different needs for both polygraphy and painting. Thus, as the artist searches for formal aesthetics, he must also pay serious attention to the ink and the brushwork. So for Wong and his literary, uh, literati contemporaries, excuse me, the flinging, dripping, or dragging of paint across a surface simply for the sake of breaking with the past must have spelled confusing, if not to say un, um, unconsidered. And so 
to sum up, essentially what starts to happen is Wong starts experimenting with the ground of the paper itself, which uh, Professor Cho has also mentioned, and that there were historical precedents for doing this. But he starts to pay greater attention to the texture of the paper. And and so in our exhibition, for example, you would see works on treated paper, untreated paper, mulberry paper, highly fibrous paper, um, and, and traditional rice paper as well. Um, and so I just I have this quote here where he starts to talk about how he breaks with his own, you know, uh, training in a sense. So he's I did some sketches on watercolor paper, a very rough paper, which gives a natural feeling. Why is it rough? Because that makes it natural. If it was smooth, then the lines wouldn't be natural. There wouldn't be anything natural in it. I discovered that Western artists also want this natural roughness. Then I began to use this roughness. Accidental effects, which give this natural feeling, depend partly on the paper. This gave me the idea that I could get some of that natural feeling by using wrinkled paper. I'm, and I'm, excuse me, <laughs> some of the, that natural feeling by using wrinkled paper, I might come up with the same result. And so this is the sort of, you know, uh, the very last thing that I'll mention is it really forced him to surrender control because if we really think about that training from Shanghai, the fact that he starts collecting at the age of 14, and that when he's here in New York, he lands in New York, I think, at the age of 42. So, you know, this um, if you've mastered something or have you know, at least made incredible progress, it's a lot, it's it's hard to let it go. It's hard to kind of back away from it. Um, so the, this is the last thing I want to point out. That wrinkling of the paper forced a temporary surrender to chance that opened up new potentials. He would go on to blot the ground of his landscape uh, compositions with foundational ink marks and then deploy his brushes to compose a landscape around the underlying texture. A call and response dialogue ensued. In this interplay between chance and control, one appreciates Wong's many references to jazz improvisation, a tradition that is often misinterpreted as completely spontaneous or free form. In jazz ensembles, a song often passes from one band member to the next, as each musician launches into an interpretive solo before they rejoin the harmonic fold of the original composition. Inventiveness within any given framework, not a complete break from it, demonstrates mastery. So, sure. And so I think that, um, so now we want to share more uh, images from the exhibition planning process. So this is HCAG, is Hunter College Art Galleries. BTS is not the Korean band. Um, It's behind the scenes (laughs) from our 2020 installation where we used paper cutouts and started laying out um, the, you know, the artworks in the space at the gallery. Um, and then we saw these some of these images before, but these are the framed artworks coming into the gallery. So this must have been in late January, earlier this year. Um, so on the upper left, we see framed works, and that, that's Professor Cho, of course, um, talking about the different works that are, yeah, that were visible from 68th Street. Did you want to say something? Yeah, yeah, that's great. They, they came in twice. 
Oh we yeah, had that's right. Photography, but it doesn't. I, know, I forgot about <laughs> yeah, the yeah, photography, actually, the documentation. We had a, it was nice to because I think to point out for our audience here, a lot of these works we had had never been professionally photographed because they're they're in private collections, and so it's always kind of a um, you know the, those. So that's why we had the opportunity to study them during early on in our seminar because we had to bring them in first time for photography, so we that's could really right. think about how to organize them. The second time they come in, they're ready to be up on the walls. Things have been decided. So, yeah. So it was a really great opportunity for our students to kind of be in the space with the works while the planning is still happening. Yeah. Let's see. And so we had, this is um, just a screen grab of the, the announcement that went out to invite people to the opening. And then here are the installation views. If you were coming in from 68th Street, this is exactly what you would see to your right walking in. So there's the phone book um, on the plinth that is under the bonnet, the plexi bonnet, two abstract works, and then a range of works. Um, the oxblood experiment is to the left. Uh, uh, work on a mulberry paper is next. And we also had works that were probably studies or demonstrations. So more or less finished, and then very finished works um, in some of the galleries. And so this is not the full documentation, but it, it's just a few installation views to give you a sense of how the show looked there. Um, and one of the things also to mention is that while we were planning this exhibition with our classmates, we really didn't want to arrange artworks chronologically. We wanted people to kind of encounter the work much more um, in terms of the brushwork, I think. Yeah. And, and, and in terms of uh, visual material connections to one another, right. uh, which has also then led us to, to think about how we want to create a catalog which complements the exhibition. And so in our essays, we were paying much more closer attention to sort of historical time as a way to kind of use the format of the book to orient in one way mm -hmm. of the, the, project, the, the career, but use the gallery spaces to kind of explore connections without having to be chronological. Right. So I, think that was, that, I think that was successful. Um, yeah, we covered um, our ground, and I think that we had a fidelity to the artist's the formal practice. And I think just the, the conversations, right? Like we were really thinking about as a class and kind of trying to, um, you know, talking with, when, I remember when Daniel came in and, you know, we were presenting to him and then he was thinking, you know, we were all kind of coming together and kind of coming to, to, to thinking about how to do this, making decisions together. Yeah. It was always good dialogues. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of which, we also had a panel conversation, and I'm just sharing some of these <laughs> photos because some of they were actually shared by. I took quick snapshots of Arnold uh, Chang's presentation, where there are images of CC being carried um, up a mountain to have a view, like and him traveling with Arnold, uh, Arnold bringing out his phone at dinner to show uh, older photos, which was very sweet. Of the same restaurant yeah. that we had celebrated. Oh, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, and that, that original photo was <laughs> taken in the restaurant. Place, yeah. yeah, we went to one of CC's favorite restaurants after the um, panel. Yeah. And then there was a really nice critical reception. And so these these articles might look really small because they're scaled down so that I could fit them on this slide. But there was um there were reviews that were 
really thoughtful um, in the New York Times, the Brooklyn Rail, Commonweal, and why there was also a, I didn't know about this article until very recently, but there was an article that was published at um, Professor Greenberg's campus, um, which was really, really well considered. But I made the Art News article the largest because in terms of whether or not one really believes in like these top 25 lists, it was really exciting to see CC's name mentioned as a path-breaking Asian-American artist and not a collector, not an authenticator, not a connoisseur, not a teacher, but really an artist in his own right. And I really hope that that is what the exhibition helped do, help bring him forward in history. And now the adventure continues. This is the web page. <laughs> this is the, the exhibition um, page at the Kalamazoo uh, Institute of Arts in Michigan. And here again, these when you see these funny little dots on these images, it's if some of you have used this technology where you can virtually visit a space by clicking on those dots. You will pull you into the room, quote unquote, virtually. So that's why they're there. So, completely different arrangement of objects, but still really elegant. And um, we keep speaking about Arnold um, Arnold Chung, and he is in Cleveland right now for the opening of another artist exhibition, I believe. But he will be speaking about um, his his relationship to CC, which he's really always says CC first and foremost was a friend. So we just wanted to share that with everyone here. That happens on December 12th. Uh, and you can register at the Institute's website. It's, it's virtual only. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, I just included this because I thought that this was very... He always talks about naturalness. Mm -hmm. But I think it's important to know that that is not the same as ignorance. And I think it has to do more with being fresh to something, looking at something of new. And that's it. This is a very cute picture of C.C. Wong playing, hiding behind a scholar's rock <laughs> that I also stole from Arnold's presentation. <laughs> Thank you. You know, the, oh, what restaurant? Well, he had various favorite restaurants, I think, but uh, the one that is still in operation, yes, the one that we had uh, celebrated the exhibit uh, in, and the one that he had frequented is uh, what is the name? It was the town pavilion. Town pavilion. That's right. That's right. Taken over by another management. Yes. Used to go there a lot. Right. Yeah, it's that you know, probably between fifth and sixth. That's the one. That's the one. Different name. No, it's the same name, but different. I think different manager. Different management, different chefs. But the food was good. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. But it's quite good. So we, yeah, Shanghai. Yeah. Who started on Pavilion? The restaurant was on his side. And he knew this man really well. I see. Over, and we I see. The one, I see. Um, uh, the, 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 Apparently, there are several CC, not several, but there are certain restaurants that have CC Wong works 
in them. So now, actually, what he did was he did a series of, um, uh, I guess, what do you call them? Yes, yes, for that, right, those we saw. But his calligraphy is there, too. And I think a few of them had in his inscriptions that said he had been asked to do this. And he signed his name, and he signed his name as the Eater C.C. Wong. <laughs> so, I mean, it clarifies the relationship. Mrs. Wong was a terrific, terrific cook. That's good to know. <laughs> I don't know if you know this restaurant in Hong Kong called Ruyi. In its heyday, the Zhangjiangmian was the best. And Mrs. Wong beat that one. Oh. <laughs> you know, this brings me to this issue I've always been thinking about, not just on this project, but just in general, when we look at and study art, what did the artists eat? You know, it's such an integral thing to your everyday practice in life. And I think we knew, yes. Yeah, so he, I think it was very important for CC. Well, see, and yeah, <laughs> to realize Mrs. Wang was unbelievable. She, you know what she told me? <laughs> you know, he was not putting health. So. Mm. Uh, but she married him when she was quite young, a teenager, and he was quite young also, and he was not really good in health. He was in Suzhou. Do you know what she did? You know, she would have trays of like, fruits like uh, peaches, plums, and when they ripen, they have that wonderful flavor, she would put them underneath his bed. Oh my. So she said it would have that nice aroma for him so he can sleep better. We can imagine wow. she just really had praise and praise of fruits under his bed waiting for them to ripen, for him to smell the aroma, for him to have a better sleep. And better appetite too, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the way she, her cooking was unbelievable. <laughs> you, you, you can't find anyone. Actually, there used to be a very good cook who kind of moonlighted for all the Shanghai family that came from, you know. Very privileged back when she was really the best cook. Mm. And he would hire her to come and cook specially for her. And Mrs. Wang was even better than mm. her. Because she, they, she invited me for a special meal, Tan And I said to her, Yours is better than the one at Luoyi, better than the one jockey club in Hong Kong. It's true. We, we need to have a, another paper. This is one second. The way it's shaped. You know those nice Suzhou dancing. You knew how to make it. Unbelievable. When we were talking about programming for this, my classmates know when we were talking about programming, like public programs for for this exhibition, I proposed that we go to all the restaurants where CC ate and look for the artwork, but also just look at the food or eat the food. I thought that would be a great walking tour. But, you know, right? And we, you know, we are a public university. We don't have, we don't actually have any. You know, our budget is non-existent. But I made sure to petition to our department. Chair, we need to have a good meal <laughs> in CC's honor. So you know, this is sort of the minimum that we have to do. So. And we did. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions or comments, thoughts? Is there any questions coming from Zoom? Thank you, Kathy, for sharing those I'm memories. Yes, I really think Kathy. you did a wonderful job to teach us students about time. 
a, a really big part for of his most, life. For the longest duration of his, uh, any place he stayed at. Right. Um, and he was he made it in a really great job because as I listened to your talk, I was thinking of all the books that have been written about his work. It really, I mean, he would be very pleased to see that much work. You seem to really understand what he was trying to do. I think so. <laughs> um, I mean, it, thanks to you, um, and you know, who, you know, you and, and other scholars are known who have so well kind of. I mean, your your work of um, you know translating and preserving the notes. I mean, those are the kind of primary. So we had these primary source documents. In a way, you know, you were you you had written about it too, but they were also you also were able to present the actual sources in your publication. And I think that I mean, for anybody. We, we didn't have to kind of go in to find his notebooks, but to see the works. And I think that was, um, I, my students are nodding. I mean, that was so, I think it's so fundamental, foundational to our understanding. You're talking so, about a telephone book. Or I'm talking about your book. Oh. <laughs> now, actually, the truth is that is really very important. It's not because I really see what happened was that if you go back to Sohui Zhong's time, Shen mm Hua -hmm. They had always been annotated notes. Right. And right. It's he, a genre. he was he was he wasn't sure what he was going to do with it for the end of his life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So but because I've read a lot of these annotated mm -hmm. notes, mm -hmm. I realize it's really continuity. You know, yeah. I've seen some of uh Hufan's notes, they're right. almost the same. Yeah. So in a way it's important. Yeah for that to be preserved because Chinese paintings, the classical ones, whether you like it or not, it's irrelevant. It's part of Chinese culture and it will always be there. I mean, today, contemporary art is very popular. But that part, if you go back to history, Mm -hmm. uh, no matter what happens, it's right. going to be there. Right. So that part of notes is very important because whatever he said that is really from the influence of people like Zhang Chongyi or Wu Hufan, Wu Lingshi, his teachers. Mm -hmm. And they really learned from the earlier uh, collectors of Mm -hmm. So that's part of the Chinese history that will always be there. Yeah, I just want to mention for those of you who might not have read the book, um, but it's Kathy uh, uh, compiled all the notes from CC's um, over the years when he visited storages and viewed paintings, um, evaluations, notes. All of that has been compiled, and then and Kathy also provided annotations of it too, yeah, right? Because, because and an introduction, I, I, I right? And so that's so and then I think the you had first written it in English and then published in Chinese edition. So there's a bilingual the, the whole thing is done in English and then in Chinese. And so when we were working on this, when I was working on it, I was really kind of comparing the Chinese and the English editions to kind of get a sense of the translations as well. And like I it's really, really incredible an incredible resource. Um I, actually, my editor told me it had to be done this way because uh, the Chinese version was really a replica of his notes. And to make sure that after we are all gone, that people realize whatever I wrote down there 
this kind of verbatim copy. So, you know, I'm completely honest about this. And that's really the most important thing that was honest. Wonderful. Right. Because the other useful text was the text by Shi Xiaohu, John Stanley Baker. But the problem with that text is that she conducted her interviews in Chinese with C.C. Wang, but then she wrote the manuscript in English. And but they didn't have the Chinese original. The notes were lost. So when they published in Chinese, they had a translator to back translate it. So when I was working on it, I didn't know what 自然新鲜 could have meant in the original. You know, those are kind of interesting choice of vocabulary. They are done by a translator. So I struggled, and I I contacted uh, uh, Professor Stanley Baker, but she doesn't have the notes, <laughs> and it's long gone. But I, you know, it's like I basically I had to translate from the back translation from English of the Chinese. I don't know what fidelity there is left. I do my best, but you're, you know, having preserved the notes in, or, in the original Chinese um, avoids us having to kind of go through Actually, that. Actually, my Chinese yeah. version, I mean, I still have the original notes. Right, it's, right, right. I it's the same. Yeah, and that's that's a really amazing archi- archival material. Yeah. So it's really very, very useful, helpful to me right now. Because sometimes you have a question, I go back to the original notes. It conveys a different message, you know what I mean? Because he really took it during three trips to Taipei, Google.、Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one was 59, one was 65, one was like 1991,、mm-hmm. 1992.、Mm-hmm. So it, it represents a change in his、mm-hmm. uh, opinion of the painting school. Yeah, yeah. So that's. To me, that's very、Definitely. helpful. Just a question about the traveling experience. Yeah. Did piece for piece, the same thing in Kalamazoo, or、yeah. did it have to be some because of space? No, it's the same exact set. Yeah, everything. Same way. Every, no, it's not. Right, it's a space. It's not the same. The loop store. You must remember, it's this very particular space, narrow rooms. The、uh, Kalamazoo one is just one. Is one. It's basically one big room. I don't know if you can see. There's a kind of wall blocking the entrance, but it's just basically one rectangular room. So we did some.、Um, so the the curators at Kalamazoo actually put、um, came up with a plan, and then we and, and Daniel and I looked at it and you know sort of speak to them about it, and then we so they they did a sort of initial designing,、uh, but we gave them、um, we provided all the materials,、um, and then you know they looked at it some. Things they may want to do a lot of adjusting, others not、um, to basically. But you know, so so all the works are are there. I believe I'm trying to think if there's anything that no. I think everything is there. So for example, the the albums had to be arranged differently because we had like a grid of four by four or five four, and then now it's in two row in just two rows. So everything's configured differently,、um, and、um, you know didn't you know we aren't there underground to kind of think about exactly how exactly do. If, you know, but but the curators are there and they know the space really well.
well. So, um, but I think what's wonderful about this virtual virtual walkthrough is that because we you know provided all the materials, the labels that students helped to write, um, which was an important part of the curatorial seminar, um, that's all being preserved through this. You, you can click on those dots, and then the objects will come up, and then you can click on them further on the right side, just a transcription of the label. Not not in the most you know, it's just like an automatic transcription, but it's all, the material's all there. And, you know, unlike, you know, exhibits where they go up quickly and there's not a lot of time, we really spend a lot of time researching each piece. And so the kind of, the kind of, um, inform the didactic, the sort of labels, the informations, um, you really can't, we, we had a leisure and the luxury to really think deeply about how to write that. Um, and we also had, we spoke to different people who advised us on what to think of about the idea that the label is a kind of very timely piece. It speaks to the now. So as a genre, as a genre of art, it's different from book writing or other kinds of work, of writing. So that was part of the, the fun and the sort of what we were kind of exploring and learning about. And we're, I think it's really nice that, that we have that, that there that we can look at to, to share with people anywhere. So, in addition to the book, right? Did, did the Hunter Gallery do something similar, or is that taken down? The virtual walkthrough? No, we don't have. I don't think we have the technology nor the resource, the <laughs> the fundings to do that, right? And it's also honestly, it's more fun to be able to walk through with people. So a lot of the students, a yeah. lot of us led. That's yeah. how we and met, that, Anthony. <laughs> and actually, that was, that was the, yeah. right. So the, it's so much better to do it in person. <laughs> because also it's wonderful to hear different stories and then also meet people that might have known CC, encountered the work, and also to hear the questions. Because someone is always, it's like, they're catching things that, you, that you, you can't. That's the joy of seeing something with someone, I think. Think. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just loved how you know he's CC so well known among say people in Chinese art or Chinese art history, um, but virtually unknown outside of that. And I feel like our gallery, our position, our audience, people are really kind of introduced to him for the first time, and that was so nice to kind of be discovered in that way and to kind of really we are um, you know creating a new audience uh, and talking to a new audience, which I think is really very much what. what we were um, um, part of the aim of the, of the project as well. And, so. and for, and I think a lot of, at least in my generation, a lot of my friends that are artists are Asian American artists or are Asian diasporic. And it's really, for me, very personally significant that we acknowledge different generations of Asian diasporic, Asian American artists that have preceded us. You know, whether we're gallerists or whether we're artists or whether we're art historians, there is something that I think is really exciting about just knowing that, that yeah, that there have, there have been a lot of difficulties about being, being rendered invisible, not being seen, not being listened to, not being taken seriously, or just ignored. Um, and so it, the act of working on a show that is historical, where someone is diasporic, but they're also an American artist, is very um, rewarding. Are you the first artist to 
how long the process took? Um, so we had, um, there, so that's a good question. So uh, I, I mentioned now there are two curatorial seminars, one at Hunter and one at um, University of Minnesota. Those, ha those took place over the course of a semester that was the spring semester of 2022. And that's where we, we sort of uh, explored different collections, uh, home in, uh, we had like a really long list of over 100 works of art, and then we kind of, then we located, we might potentially consider long, and then we kind of um, selected down to, paired down to maybe like something like 450 or something like that, and tried to home in on curatorial vision. So that was one semester. And then we had a, and then at Hunter only, we had a second semester where we basically engaged in the implementation. So the so Caroline here is in that second semester we, where we kind of finalized the works that we're going to lend, uh, that we're going to, uh, that will be lended to, to Hunter, and then we'll look, think about how to write, practice writing, you know, descriptions, labels, the book aspects of it. And so that's, that all happened in the second semester. So I would say overall, you know, not counting the summer, we, it was basically over the year that we did this. So we weren't continuously working, and there weren't all the different SEM people, so the two seminars had some students that, you know, Margaret was there the whole year, a few others were there the whole year, and some joined later, some um, couldn't continue. But so over the course of the year, we developed it, taught it, so two semesters, and then, you know, a lot of the time was also spent producing the book and thinking about how to structure that. So together, I think a year for both the exhibition and the book. Um, yeah. <laughs> It's a lot of time if you think yeah, about it. For yeah, I don't know if you yeah. uh, if you've done the exhibits and you know publications. It's not a lot, it's a it's a lot of time compared to what people have to do normally for say you know compared to your gallery work. Um, but for the book, it's the shortest yeah. time I've ever produced a book. <laughs> and you know my last book took me ten years to write. So so I think it's all relative. Um, I want to thank uh, Professor Zhou and Ma uh, Margaret for a wonderful talk. Uh, you can purchase CC Wang Lines of Abstraction here tonight, $40, and online. Uh, the link is in, uh, to the University of Chicago Press website is available on tonight's talk webpage. With that, enjoy the rest of your Friday evening. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday, and remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need. And good night. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.